And welcome again to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins, and in the last four episodes, we've heard from previous winners of the prize, including the 2020 recipient, Dr. Glenn Regeer. We'll come back to more winners at the end of the series, but for the next 13 episodes, we'll focus on the 2019 Fellows, outstanding researchers, scientists, and medical professionals who are at the cutting edge of medical education research. We start with Dr. Nicole Woods scientist and Associate Director of Operations at the University Health Network in Toronto and recently appointed as a Director at the Institute for Education Research. She's a cognitive psychologist and her work examines the role of basic science knowledge in clinical reasoning and the development of medical expertise. In our interview for this podcast, she started by telling me more about her research. I've been doing this research for about 15 years and over that time, what I've been really focused on is the development of clinical reasoning in all of the health professions, medicine, surgery, dentistry, nursing. But more specifically, I've been really, really honed in on trying to understand how students learn to integrate their basic science knowledge, that's their knowledge of biochemistry and anatomy and physiology, with their clinical knowledge. So their understanding of signs and symptoms. And that's really been the bulk of my work this entire time. And when I came to Karolinska and was really honored to be part of the fellowship program, that was my focus is how do I amplify this work and how do I make a way for this work to resonate with the broader population of medical education? And what has been the next step? So I think for me, the next step is kind of twofold. So at one level, I'm really interested in turning all of the laboratory work that we've been doing over the last 15 years into tangible um, educational innovations, curriculum development, and strategies and tools. And so for me, the next step is moving from cognitive psychology to embracing concepts from education, psychology, um, higher education, even K through 12 education, and see how we can modify these kind of basic laboratory studies into real world curriculum development that people can use. So it's this kind of um, holy grail of being able to make your science useful for everyday people who are not scientists, and even more importantly, not psychologists. So how do we take it to that other, the real world in the real life? So how do you do that? So we do that through a couple of things. One is by more experiments. So that is, so it's kind of a cheat because in some ways, yes, I want it to be real, but I also still want to understand it better. So we're starting now to conduct more ethnographic studies. So actually I want to be able to observe in the classroom setting, observe in the clinic and see how the concepts that we've touched upon in the lab, what do they look like when you take them outside of the lab? So that's one thing. Um, But in addition to understanding it better, I also have to collaborate more with local and international teachers. So it's really working and collaborating with frontline teachers, helping them understand the concepts, and then really having them tell me, hey, how is this useful to you in your practice? So it's more laboratory study, it's more collaboration, and it's more attempts to bring all of this together and bring it to life. 
So you're collating all this data from lots of different areas. My job at the BBC is as a weather presenter and we deal with forecast models. So is this your version of a forecast model? Absolutely. That is a really great uh, uh, analogy. It is exactly that. We're trying to build a model of expert development. So when I think of this, when I think really big picture, my model is saying, look, this is where we want to go. This is the type of health practitioner that we need in our society. So I look at that gold standard expert and say, if this is the expert that we want to build, what's the path? To get there. And I'm trying to take all these different sources of information, my laboratory studies, the ethnographic work, my conversations in the hallway with frontline teachers, pull all those together so that we can build this optimized education experience that will eventually lead to the development of that expert um, that we all want to be sitting in front of when we have a medical problem. Like that's what the goal is. A model is only as good as the data you put in it. And you've been doing this for 15 years. Have you got 15 years worth of data? Yeah, so we do have 15 years worth of data. It's all different, right? So the the questions we started out, I love to remind people I've been doing this for 15 years, mostly to just remind them to look at some of the earlier work too. Often people just look at the most recent studies. But honestly, I think of all of this as converging evidence. So yes, when we first started, my really, really early work I was only looking at, I I come from a cognitive psychology background, and so my early studies weren't about medical education per se, they were about basic human reasoning. And so the early participants in those studies weren't even medical students per se, they were just psychology undergraduates. And I was trying to get a better understanding of this kind of basic task. Over time, the work has evolved. And so we started looking at work with actual medical students. And then we have some work with dentistry students and we have some work with practicing physicians. So it's all kind of taken different winding path along the way. But I never forget the lessons from those really, really early studies. Some of my very, very first work, I still draw upon it. And I was like, oh, yes, remember that finding from that lab study 10 years ago? Let's revisit that and see what it would look like today. A lot of research is born out of challenges or perceived challenges which have arisen. So what was the problem or challenge which you identified, which said to you, right, this is going to be my research area? Yeah. So when I first started doing this work, I was just learning some basics about uh, medical education. And one of the first problems and challenges that was brought to my attention was this. It wasn't even a challenge. It was an argument. It was an academic argument about the role of basic science in medical education. So the way most medical programs are set up, you spend at least two years looking at basic science courses. Again, such so your anatomy, your physiology, your biochemistry. And so we had this scientific debate going on about what's the point of this? Like, why do students need this, this knowledge? And when you're a student, you wonder that yourself as, as well, as most students do in the first couple of years of any program. You're like, why do I need this highly theoretical stuff. Um, But the academic argument was really pushing the question, saying, what's the purpose of this knowledge? And so when I started looking at some of the papers, I felt like they were looking at it wrong. So they were talking about it like it was just a problem-solving activity. So there were all these studies at the time where they were asking physicians and they were saying, hey, how do you use your basic science knowledge? And the physicians were saying, I don't. And then they were asking medical students to solve problems and they were asking them to talk out loud while they solved the problems. And it didn't look like the medical students were using their basic science knowledge. And I felt they were just approaching the problem completely wrong. Because I was coming from a cog psych 
background, I was like, we don't just ask human beings how they accomplish basic categorization tasks because they don't know. They have no idea. If I ask you how you do any number of cognitive tasks, you can't tell me your brain just does it. So I was like, this, we're not doing this properly. We need to be studying this as if it's a cognition problem. And so that was really where I started was trying to figure out if I want to know the value of this knowledge, I need to understand what it does in human cognition. And so, yeah, that was, that's how I got into it. And I, I started this work literally as an undergraduate psychology student for my thesis. And I just had this one little project I thought would be kind of cool. And it blew up into a PhD and an entire career. Is this research focused mainly on novice learners or could it be applied to people throughout their career? So it's continuous learning. Yeah, I think it definitely applies to people throughout their career. Again, this is part of the, the big model that you, that you just talked about. I think that, yes, we started this work and a lot of our laboratory studies are done with novices, um, but that's just where it's most obvious and that's where it's easiest to kind of play in the lab. But in reality, this is a basic problem of all education, and that includes continuing education and lifelong learning. So you're always going to have to think about how do people integrate different sources of knowledge? How do people understand the whys of what they're doing? And when you're in first year medical school, the whys might be biochemistry, anatomy, physiology. But when you are a practicing physician, when you are an expert in any field, that kind of why knowledge can come from any number of sources. So now maybe it's not biochemistry and physiology, maybe it's sociology, maybe it's system science, maybe... It's an understanding of physics or plumbing or whatever is relevant to your practice. But there's nothing that says this is only limited to undergrad medical students. Can you give an example of how that might work in a classroom? Yeah, so there's a, we've actually have a few studies lately where we've been looking at kind of classroom manipulation of this. And so when you are trying to present novel content to medical students, and if it's basic science content, there's two ways you can go about it. So one is the basic science teacher comes in and they give you a lecture on their biochemistry. And then right after that, they have a clinical teacher, someone who's a frontline teacher, come in and give a lecture on diabetes, something like that. What I found in my lab is that that's the least efficient way, that's the most inefficient way to do this. And you're almost guaranteeing there will be no integration of knowledge. What's going to happen in that, in that situation is the basic science teacher is going to get up. No one's going to listen to what the basic science teacher has to say. And then all their attention is going to be devoted to when that clinical teacher comes in and presents the diabetes lecture. But what we want is for the students to use their biochemistry to better understand how to treat diabetes. And to do that, we need to reconstruct the entire lecture. So what I argue is that what should happen is that the biochemistry teacher and the clinical teacher should work together beforehand to tightly create a really clear and coherent learning experience. That could be a lecture, that could be problem-based learning, it could be anything, but they create that experience. And the goal of that experience is to make sure that students develop an integrated understanding of those two forms of knowledge. We want them to understand what diabetes is and why those signs and symptoms occur. And that really is the job. And to do that, we need to have what we call integrated instruction. So I'm now starting to work more and more with teachers to say, how can we create these types of materials that look like the ones that we've created for the lab so that you can use them in your classroom? And I have to say it's effortful, but it's time well spent. 
educators and teachers listening to this might think they have to completely change their whole curriculum. Is that right or is it just some subtle adjustments? So I think it's a little bit of both, depending on what your current curriculum is. So in some state, in some instances, yes, it's a complete change because there are many cases where we've been doing the wrong thing for a very, very long time. But you know what? That's okay. There's nothing that says we always have to continue. We don't have to teach things just because this is the way we've done it before. Sometimes you need that moment, right? That says, this is wrong. I'm going to stop it. And it might take, it might take work, but I'm going to stop it. I'm going to, and I'm going to gather some colleagues and we're going to try this again. But for other people, it's going to be minor tweaks. So for many, many people, this is just giving them language for things they were already doing. So maybe you were already doing integrated instruction. You just didn't know it was integrated instruction. So now you can label it this and that puts you in a position to share it with other people. The other possibility might be that you have the basic schematics there in your lecture, in your learning experiences, in your cases. What you need to do is just build in a few tweakable moments where you ask more why questions. Maybe you were constantly asking what questions. Now ask a few whys. Done. That should do it. So it just kind of depends on where you're currently at. I think the big thing is no matter which one it is, whether you need to do tweaking or whether you need to make huge changes, you should not be doing it by yourself. So the advantage of this work is that it enables community development of materials, team development of materials. Um, There's no reason for one teacher when you're thinking about integrated instruction. We don't need one person to be responsible for the entire course, the entire curriculum, which is actually quite liberating. So I come from a communications background, journalism, broadcasting. Is communication at the heart of what you do or is that oversimplifying it? No, it's actually not over. That's a great way to think about it. To be a, an effective educator, it's about thinking more about what is the purpose of my presentation today? Not what do I want to say, but what do they need to hear? And how am I going to make sure that I'm embracing the perspective of the learner? And so the mistakes that we make, especially when you're an expert in a field, when you know a lot about biochemistry, it is very easy to simply assume that if I give as much in-depth biochemistry knowledge as I have, the students will appreciate that and they'll, they'll, they need it and they'll learn it and it'll be perfect. Unlikely. You need to appreciate what does the learner need from this lecture and you need to make that explicit. Don't leave them kind of digging for the relevance and trying to figure out the important points, make them visible, make them explicit and integrate them with what else they need to know. 2020 has been an unsettling and strange year for all of us. What impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on your research? Yeah, I mean, I think that for all, obviously for all of education, this has been a huge shift, right? It's, it's really, it's been very, quite disruptive to not be able to meet in person. For research, we've had to stop some of the studies that we had planned. Again, they were supposed to be ethnographic studies in clinics. It's kind of hard to, to do that right now. But it's also pushed us to think differently about how can we collect data virtually? How can we run an entire experiment? So what we used to do for these experiments is bring people into the lab to meet with the experimenter face-to-face in one-on-one sessions. So now we had to be challenged to say, okay, how can we continue some of this work virtually? How can we bring our lab online? And we've been able to run one study in the last few months online, and there was some hits and misses. Some of it worked really well. Some of it didn't. It's all kind of learning, but it is helping us reach a broader group of participants. 
So when you think about it, when you are forcing people to come into the lab, you are limiting who is able to participate, um, who might be willing to participate. We have seen an uptick in the number of participants purely by moving to virtual. Now we just have to figure out how we're going to make it work practically. Something which has come up regularly in my interviews for this series is diversity and how perhaps in the past the field and even the prize has struggled with this. I know it was one of the reasons for creating the fellowship to address the lack of diversity. What are your thoughts and what challenges, if any, have you faced because of your ethnicity and or gender? As much as I um, enjoy and love and appreciate my city, my, my home and my community, I will say that there are very few scientists in my area and really in very many ones in Toronto who look exactly like me. So I'll give you, I'll, I'll explain that a bit further for since this is a podcast. So <laughs> my own background, yes, I'm from Toronto, um, but my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. And so we have a very strong African Caribbean uh, community here in Toronto. But that doesn't mean we always have members of the African Caribbean community at scientific meetings or working as professors at U of T. And so what I have found is that there are often moments in science, as welcoming as people try to be, it can be isolating because there are so few people who look like you. And it's hard to figure out. In many ways, I just recently received an appointment at a, as a research institute director here at my hospital. We have seven research institutes. I'm the only woman, I'm the only woman who's an institute director, and I'm the only black person who's an institute director. And so at those tables, it's just me. And so sometimes you'll say things and you'll find yourself wondering, am I the only one who's not getting this? Is, are other people not understanding me? Is this my moment I should speak up? And that's hard. And I don't think that that's a way other people feel because it's never only them, right? So our other institute directors who are white males and who are amazing, outstanding scientists have no idea what it is like to be the only me in the room. No clue. And so I think one of the things that's happened in the last little while is with the announcement of this appointment, which very much I also was able to profile my Karolinska Fellowship in that role. People asked a lot about that um, in, in getting that role. What it's allowed me to do is think about how I can make sure that I'm not always going to be the only one, right? So how can we make sure that other young people in my African Caribbean community in Toronto see me, know I'm here, and know that this is a pathway that could be open for them? So I, I've always believed representation matters, and it's something that we all have to take very, very seriously. When people don't see that there are other options for them, when they don't see that the Karolinska Prize could be awarded to someone who looks like me, to someone who's a woman, to, if it seems like it's only white males allowed, that's incredibly discouraging, even if it's unintentional. Right? Like no one is saying that they're explicitly trying to do this, but it is meaningful when it happens that way. What I'm picking up from all of those I've interviewed is not just philanthropy, but also this idea of mentorship. I know you're really busy, but do you allow time in your schedule to go and support and encourage the next generation? I think that's the most important piece is, is helping people understand that this is an option for them. People have asked me many, many times how I got into this work. And how I got into this work was very serendipitous. All the decisions I had to make on the pathway from high school, all the way up through to undergrad, there were many, many ways where I was on my own trying to navigate a system that I knew nothing about. 
So I don't come from an affluent background where everybody went to university. I don't have that. I don't. I didn't grow up in a neighborhood where there were scientists. There, there just weren't. There were no scientists in my neighborhood, at least that I was aware of. Um, and so understanding that this is an option is just even one of the first steps. Like if, if I always think that if, if I could go back in time and talk to, you know, a 10 year old version of me, I would have loved someone to say to me, do you know that this is a possibility? Did you know you could be an institute director? Did you know you could be a scientist? Did you know you could be that? That would be a very empowering thing. And so I've always thought that this was incredibly important. I've done a lot of work in the community, working with various community centers and youth group programs. I think that youth outreach is is vital. Otherwise, we will never change and it will always be only me in the room. And with that in mind, do you think your research can connect with that? Can you use it in schools and colleges, not just for the educators, but for the students as well to say, this is how you learn? Absolutely. One of the things I've always believed about my work, because it is so focused on basic human cognition, it applies to everyone. It resonates with everyone. The idea that integrated understanding helps you with diagnosis, great. It also helps you pass high school courses. It also helps you with K through 12. It's a very useful construct. The other thing I find is that education is something that speaks to everyone. So when you can talk to somebody about science of learning, It really, really speaks to them. It really, really resonates. So just the topic area is something that young people find interesting. Also, psychology is something people find fascinating. Um, And so it's a great way to get in hooks. I love some of the um, work we do in the lab is really just basic demos around human cognition that are just kind of fun, I have to say. Psych is fun. It's one of the more fun sciences. And I stand by that claim and I will not take any argument against it. So let's talk about the fellowship. What was your experience and what has it meant for you? Yeah, so I think as as we were just talking about it, I really believe that representation is important. And for me, being awarded the fellowship has personally been incredibly gratifying. I was was stunned, actually, when they first let me know that we were going to be invited to to Karolinska to participate. I was honoured and really excited about the opportunity. And it's meant for me personally a chance to meet all of the other fellows, which I honestly never would have had a chance to do and and be inspired by them um, to think about just new things. I was so amazed by the work that they were all doing. And I actually had hoped that a couple of them would be able to come and visit Toronto this year. That did not work, but that's okay. We will try it again another year. But I was really just inspired and amazed. And I also think that to have a prize like this, in my field that is maybe within my reach has been inspiring for me just to think about the possibility. And yeah, you know, maybe I won't ever win, but just thinking that I could was not something I had considered before. And so I'm incredibly appreciative of just the opportunity to open my own eyes to where I could go, right? Just like I always say, I want to tell young people this is a possibility for you, realizing that this is even the tiniest of possibility for me is huge. So I really, really appreciate that this, that this was the direction they decided to go by launching this particular fellowship program and opening doors for people such as myself and all of the other um, people that had a chance to participate in the program to see that this, this too could be you. Even if you look nothing like the previous winners, this too could be you. 
I love that with everything you've achieved, you still talk about possibility and opportunity. Where do you see your research taking you and what are your next set of goals? As I said, so I have just been named as an institute director at my hospital. And for me, my goal right now is to elevate the profile of education science. I really want to see people thinking about education as a science the same way they think about stem cells and neuroscience. Like I really want that level of of elevation. And so it's all about the profile and helping people understand what we mean by taking education seriously. What does it mean to really think of the science of education in the health professions and and beyond, right? So to me, that's where I want to go. I want to see more teachers, administrators, uh, curriculum designers thinking about theory, thinking about science and thinking about how they can use not just my work, but really the work of all of my colleagues in the design of their own curriculum. And I know some, in some ways that seems small, but truthfully, we don't normally do that in education. Like we are so bad at just sort of running forward with what we did before. And so if I do my job well, that will stop. And at least we will start thinking more carefully about what it means to build a medical school. What does it mean to develop the experts that society means, needs by optimizing education? And that's what I want to see. It's that kind of, you know, in, in biomedical sciences, we always assume that the science comes first, right? So we're all looking for a vaccine. It's going to take lots and lots of years of, of study. And I want us to think the same way about education. Dr. Nicole Woods. Next time, we'll hear from Professor Walter Epic and his research into healthcare simulation, debriefing and workplace conversations. Until then, goodbye.